asking yourself the question, is there something in my life that I make money for that I could procure myself? You know, so like the obvious one in this space is like, you know, could I, you know, go out and hunt an animal in the fall and put that meat away rather than supporting, you know, the global, you know, economy, you know, just getting it out the store. But then another one, you know, in Alaska, it's very common. And what we do, you know, we cut our own wood. So rather than paying, you know, the fossil fuel, you know, company to send fuel to our house, we're directly engaged in this process of heating our home. And we don't have running water. And not to say that this is a prescription or whatever, I'm just using this as an example of like, you know, ways that we can, you know, we're never going to be able to take this population base that we have now and say, all right, everybody, let's go back to the Paleolithic. But we can create a lot more proxies in our life and kind of take more control over aspects of our life by asking ourselves these kind of like simple questions of like, why am I working so much to pay for something that I could just cut out the middleman and then have this much more intimate experience with hauling the water, chopping the wood, killing the animal, learning how to fish, you know, on and on. Um, you know, and it could be, you know, any number of baby steps, you know, if you only live, if you live in a sky rise apartment, you know, it's like having a little, you know, vegetable garden on your stoop or whatever. You know, but those little steps I see as great acts of resistance, and they give you this sense, greater sense of um, connection to your kind of ancestral, you know, programming. Okay, Bjorn, thanks for being here. It's, uh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah, I'm looking forward to this. I guess maybe could you start out just telling us a bit about like who you are, what you do? Like, how do you normally answer that question? People say, what do you do? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of always a, you know, evolving and changing thing. But um, I'm, you know, was born in interior Alaska and, you know, have lived basically in Alaska my entire life. Um, I currently reside in a coastal community um, in Southern Alaska called Homer, Alaska. It's a, you know, by Alaska standards, we call this a medium-sized town, but it's, you know, like four or 5,000 people. Yeah. coastal and beautiful um and the, the one, one thing i love about alaska a friend of mine framed this really well years ago is that often you know what we do and how we make money are not the same thing so what i do and what i kind of think of myself as is like an adventurer and a you know a half-assed ecologist um and filmmaker um and then for what i how i make money is filmmaking and working with environmental nonprofits. And, you know, I've kind of come into this kind of ancestral, you know, health space, um, kind of jumped in both feet about four years ago when I was starting to get, develop some real metabolic uh, dysfunction, and, uh, you know, if we want to go into this whole story later. But, you know, I, I grew up in this, you know, subsistence homestead. So once I started reading about, you know, these practices and, you know, how to change your diet to match your, you know, ancestral gene programming, you know, two and a half million years on this planet as a species. We've only been, you know, the agricultural revolution for 10,000 years and industrialization in the last 150 years. There's no, you know, it's no mystery that there's a mismatch there. Um, and so a lot of it really started to make sense for me um, on a very deep level because I'd grown up in a pretty subsistence household. Um, but, you know, it's really, you know, the, 
biochemistry and the anthropology and the kind of the, the deep understandings of why these sorts of, you know, uh, interventions work so well really fascinates me. So I've been in that headspace for the last four years and okay. I think that's kind of what I've been thinking about a lot. And I also, I'm very much a climate change activist, you know, living here in Alaska, um, you know, these things, you know, we do these big human powered expeditions um, and, you know, get to, you know, travel all over the state by human power, you know, very slow, methodical, meet a tremendous amount of people in a lot of different, you know, um, you know, villages and, you know, living closer to nature and, you know, so anecdotally from them, but also from our own experiences of just seeing how fast things are changing. So I've kind of worn, you know, the, you know, the badge of an actual activist, you know, trying to get people to pay attention to this crisis that we're all, you know, collectively experiencing whether or not we um, are internalizing that and, you know, prioritizing it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of people who would call themselves, I think, you know, concerned with the climate or, or activists of some kind. There's a lot of people who are into ancestral health. But I think the way you combine those specifically with these expeditions is, is really unique. I, I'm, I'm really interested in how, how those three have kind of combined for you to be, you found a way to combine them in like a single project, you know, and, and I... I guess I'm I'm really curious about if if you could maybe tell me more about like where does this impulse come from? Starting with the, the expeditions. Like what is it that drives you? Because you use the fat bike and uh a pack raft, right? Which are both Alaskan inventions, if I'm if yeah. I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And you yeah. just go out, you're not on any kind of trail or anything, and just crossing pretty, pretty rugged terrain. I mean, I've I've checked out quite a few of your videos and it's it's impressive where you can get with that stuff. Yeah, it's so neat. You know, it's like, you know, so, you know, my initial kind of like love affairs and fascination with, you know, uh, outdoor adventuring, were kind of more conventional things like mountaineering and ski mountaineering and kayaking. And then, um, but when I was pretty young, I was like 22 or so I was exposed to um, had a friend that was the, one of the first people to ever bicycle the entire length of the Iditarod Trail, which that was amazingly it was accomplished in like 1989 you know it was like quite a while before the fat bike and I did a trip with him and it blew my mind you know that you could cover that much ground in the winter um but that technology didn't exist you know so you know like if you tried to ride a bike on a winter snow machine trail dog sled trail sometimes you get lucky and the conditions would be good but often they were you know they're not <laughs> they're not good enough and so it wasn't until 2005, but so, you know, that seed was planted then. And I kind of stuck with my, you know, more, you know, like mountaineering and, you know, these other kind of pursuits and cycled, you know, but not like hardcore. It wasn't like my identity. Um, but then in 2005, they, the industry finally kind of caught on and I got my first fat bike and, you know, it was just so amazing to see that. So, you know, they were, the, the motivation or the, you know, the kind of the engineering mind behind it was always about these winter racing events that happened in Alaska on the Adirond Trail um, in particular, you know, there were a few others. Um, and that was where the shade tree, you know, people were trying to like come up with what, what could work better? What, how can we do this, you know, more efficiently, you know, because you're, you end up pushing your bike a lot. Um, and then finally, so 2005, the industry kind of caught on. There was a few little companies that were doing it, making fat bikes. And then, you know, but right away, 
some of us, you know, up here started realizing that it's not just the winter, you know, Alaska is huge and there are a lot of summertime routes that are not on trail. They're wilderness routes. You know, it's this kind of, in Alaska, there's this uh, uh, wilderness uh, race. It's a human powered race. You know, the rules are you have to finish with what you started with. You can't leave caches out in the middle. Uh, self-supported and so a lot of this like fast and light ethic from like you know alpine mountaineering is taken to the wilderness context and so then using a fat bike you know just kind of immediately like that that, you know is just a continuation of this progression and so for the last you know whatever uh, 16 years now I guess that's you know been this thing that I've been experimenting with and it's so fun to see you know, what is possible? You know, you look on, you know, maps, you look on Google Earth, you know, like, I think this is potentially a way to get from here to here. And then, you, you know, the more you start doing it, the more you start realizing, oh, well, Alaska natives have been using these corridors for thousands of years. So maybe there's a way we can, you know, get through here to get through here to get to the next one. And sometimes they end in like complete, you know, utter failures, you know, we've had some, you know, some really spectacular failures, yeah. um, but, you know, and it's so cool when you get to pull something off that, you know, you, you, you had the idea, you didn't, there's no route book, you know, it was like your concoction and, and you go out and throw yourself at it and, you know, end up, you know, this point covering thousands of miles of, you know, roadless um, miles and meeting so many fascinating people, you know, like that's, there's no, I can't think, you know, unless you're willing to ski and only go in the winter, there's no way to kind of travel that much, you know, or to cover that much country by human power. Um, and, you know, which gives you just this incredible intimacy, you know, that, so yeah, it's been a real treat to be alive in a time, you know, something I've framed quite a few times, like, you know, learning mountaineering about mountaineering when I was you know pretty young, and reading all the books, but then being like, oh, shit, all the neat things have been already been done. You know, there's no, it's hard to have a novel experience, you know, something that is completely original. And this, you know, has really given me that opportunity to have a lot of novel experiences. Yeah. What does that planning process look like? I mean, how, how many months are you sort of pouring over the, the maps and trying to figure it out? How many months are you actually traveling? Like, what is, I guess, what, is, what does that breakdown look like? Well, each one is a little different. And I think in general, um, you know, there's usually like three or four ideas that are, you know, rattling around in my head. Um, and the more, you know, the more trips that we do, the more you get this familiarity with like, well, if that one worked, then I bet we could be able to link this up with that. And so, be, you know, the, with, with more experience, there becomes a little bit more of a fluid process, but, uh, yeah, just like with any, you know, the big kayak expeditions and with the big mountaineering expeditions as well, you know, there is just like a certain amount of time that you kind of have to dedicate to physically getting ready, you know, feeling like you're up to the physical challenge of it is like requires, you know, conditioning and feeling strong. And then the actual, you know, preparation for packing the food and figuring out where you're going to, you know, mostly these, you know, these uh, fat bike expeditions, what we rely on is, you know, general delivery post office, um, um, sending flat rate boxes of food ahead. And so we really try to, you know, choose our routes around where we can get to the next village to be able to resupply. Um, So, you know, I would say, you know, the, the real, the kind of the crunch time is like two weeks before you leave 
but you know we really start planning them often like six months beforehand you know to get our minds wrapped around what we're you know going to and this is in the case of the bigger ones you know we do a lot of small ones too and they're just like let's pack up and go you know yeah yeah i mean so it's it's a major commitment that's i mean pretty much throughout the year you're focused on either the expedition you've just done or the next one you're going to be doing right yeah that that is kind of like you know how, how it often is you know we, we try to do one big one in the winter and one big one in the summer every year and a lot of you know medium-sized ones in there um there you know we do have a little bit of you know we have some sponsorship uh support for gear but you know the, the, the trips are all out of pocket you know and so we've kind of maintained this fluid lifestyle both my partner and I who is you know my you know fiance at this point and we've been together for 12 13 years now I guess um but uh she's also my trip partner um and both of us are you know freelance workers so we have we you know and that's part of like our whole you know shtick is that we're trying to maintain this flexibility in our lifestyle to be able to make sure that this gets prioritized, you know, that that doesn't get swept under because of our careers. Yeah. And so far we've been able to make that work. Yeah. I mean, that sounds to me, that sounds amazing. That sounds beautiful. You know, it's probably not for everybody. (laughs) Oh no, definitely not. Definitely not. But I think that's, it's something I've, I've often been struck by when I go to Alaska is, is how many people are able to sort of fit their life around their passions really and often that means being outdoors doing you know hunting bushcraft uh all kinds of stuff like that and it's really i haven't been anywhere else in the world where there's that kind of intense energy around exploring and living in 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 the wild you know i think it's it's really special you know and it's something that i don't take for granted you know i think it's something that you know, I, I wish that other places could rewild and, you know, main, you know, get back to what Alaska has never lost. And that kind of like informs a lot of my activism, you know, is like really like knowing very well from my travels outside of Alaska that this is special and that, you know, it's going to take effort to keep it that way because, you know, for, you know, the greater you know, looking at Alaska as a part of the, you know, greater, you know, continental United States, we're often kind of seen as nothing more than a resource extraction colony, you know, with pretty birds and, you know, you know, moose, you know, Um, and, and so there's a lot that we are, we are constantly facing a barrage of really poorly conceived, you know, um, non-renewable resource extraction you know, projects and industrial scale ones, you know, that would greatly diminish that sense of freedom, you know, that we currently have here. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, to me, it it makes a lot of intuitive sense uh, what you're doing, but for someone who's, you know, maybe sitting at home comfortably on their couch and just thinking like, why the hell would he do that? Like, what, what is the point? You know, Mm -hmm. how do you, how do you explain that? How do you, like, where does that drive come from to, to basically dedicate your life to going out into the wild and just going places where people maybe have never been or definitely don't, don't regularly go, you know, what is it that's pushing you? 
I, I feel like it's one of those ones. If you have to ask, you'll never know, <laughs> you know, um, it, and it's like, it's hard, I guess it's hard to even like articulate it because it's just so embedded into my identity for so long that, you know, um, you know, I think that probably the thing that people will, you know, would imagine if that, if they needed to ask that question, if they didn't intuitively feel, you know, a similar longing and they were like puzzled by like, why would you do that? I think the thing that they would probably be concerned with or, you know, be why they would be struggling with why somebody would do it is the challenge of it. Um, but that is, you know, it, it's not to diminish the fact that it is often challenging and we have, you know, really tough times, but you know, that, that is, uh, I mean, I feel like we're learning a lot these days about how, um, modern society and our addiction to devices has really hijacked our dopamine and people, you know, don't have to put any effort in, you know, you post a, you know, a selfie on social media and people start liking it and you get, a, you know, a little, a teeny little hit of dopamine and it's, it's so cheap, you know, that dopamine hit is just so cheap these days. And yet, we have, you know, this great capacity to feel sense of connection and purpose and um, gratitude and, you know, all these things that are associated with dopamine, but they often the best ones are the ones that are most memorable and meaningful come with some degree of effort. Um, and so, you know, that's, I think, part of it, you know, I think that, you know, that when we do accomplish one of these things, like we get to really like relish in that, like, wow, look at what we did. You know, it's, it's so cool. But then, you know, another part is, you know, just this intellectual curiosity, you know, like, you know, gaining this deeper sense of geography and place and natural history and, you know, understanding how migrations work and, what time of year people like to go hunt caribou here versus over there and how people in this village like to make their swan soup. And, you know, there's just all of these little things that continually come together, the more we kind of put ourselves out there. And yeah, at this point, there's no, there's no questioning it, you know, for us. Um, and I, you know, it's, yeah, like it is one of those ones where if you have to ask, maybe, you know, you, you just wouldn't ever, get it <laughs> yeah 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 i think i think for people who are you know skeptical or wondering i think a major thing is it's going to be discomfort and pain you yeah. know and just like that that sounds miserable you know so i guess i'm i'm right. curious like what is if if pain were a person say what would your relationship with pain be oh interesting um we're definitely acquaintances, <laughs> um, but you know, uh, I, I I know how to you know there well, you know as it gets to kind of the big dietary change, you know that's a real mitigation story, you know like I've learned I I I learned how to mitigate the self I, what I didn't realize what I was doing it was self inflicting pain on myself by following bad dietary advice for a long time. And when I switched that, that completely changed the game. Pain that I used to have as a chronic physical pain is gone, like miraculously. Um, but, you know, there are these other things, you know, like environmental things, like cold, 
you know, like we're often in 20, 30, 40 below. And we really know how to handle that. You know, we, we know how to dress for it. We know how to, you know, make sure that the, you know, the moisture never becomes, you know, too big of an issue. We catch problems before they become problems. Um, you know, we don't like getting frostbite is complete failure. Like, you know, that, that is just against the rules. Frostbite is not allowed. Um, hypothermia is not allowed. You know, we don't, we don't let ourselves get to that point because we know how to, you know, mitigate it. Um, and so for example, like on our winter trips for a long time, you know, doing winter trips, mountaineering, and then first, you know, like seven or so years of doing the winter fat bike trips, you know, we did it in the old way of, you know, like a lightweight little shelter down 40 below down sleeping bag. And you get in at the end of the day, freezing cold, you make your meal on a, you know, a gas stove, you know, like a whisper light or whatever. And then, you know, about an hour after being in your sleeping bag, after you've eaten dinner, you finally warm up, you know, well enough that you can fall asleep. And in the morning it's 30 below and there's frost everywhere and it's miserable. Um, and, you know, there's ways that you can kind of mitigate that to make it not be as miserable. Um, but still, every time you get to a village, you need to dry out. Your gear has, you know, gotten a compromised from sweat and moisture. Um, but now what we do is we use a little collapsible titanium wood stove in our little sub two pound floorless pyramid shelter. And it's just completely changed the entire experience. Like we go to bed every night you know, roasty, toasty, all the moisture um, evaporates off of us. We cook our meal. It's the, it's the, we're only using the, you know, the raw materials from the environment, you know, to cook with. So we're not carrying any, you know, petroleum at all. Um, it creates this like, deeper sense of uh, connection to the place because we really have to think about where we're going to position ourselves each night. Um, and then we wake up in the morning and dry out all the moisture, the, you know, the uh, evaporation from our breath, condensation from our breath off the shelter, all goes away, all the moisture goes out of your sleeping bag. So we start out every day, like the same weight as if we were just leaving for the trip, which is miraculous. We get to warm our hands on the embers before we stuff them into our mittens and start the day. And it's just like, it's a game changer. So, you know, like, I guess, you know, answering the question about, you know, pain, it's, uh, pain, you could, we've learned how to negotiate with it, <laughs> you know, and kind of learned how to, you know, often become it's, you know, like we're more in control than it is over us. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like there, there's a balance right between like what you can avoid and what you can sort of glide through you do. And then what you can't, you just have to accept it, you know, right. Just, just ride it out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then you, you hit on a really interesting point there as well. It's like part of it's environmental in terms of, you know, just basic stuff like are you using gas or, or wood, wood fire, but also on a, on a deeper sort of personal level, it's like in terms of your physical preparation with, you know, with the diet or with conditioning, whatever it is, it's, it's also, to me, it seems like there's a really delicate balance there as well, where you, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like you, you're getting, trying to get to a point where it's effortless to push hard, basically. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And I think that with, you know, you know, these, all these years of experience, it's not to say that we can't go out and have like a really bad day or even get, you know, like last winter, the expedition we tried, we got out 130 miles or so 
on this route above the Arctic Circle, and it just dumped an ungodly amount of snow on us, and we had to abandon our trip. You know, it was like it, it was beyond our ability to, you know, reckon with it. We were, you know, outside of the realm of what was reasonable, you know. And so that, you know, that's a that's a lesson I learned from mountaineering, you know, like early on, you know, like you might really want the summit, but if it's too stormy, if it's, you know, whatever, you know, you're, you're not going to just continue to scratch your way up if, you know, avalanche conditions are too high or whatever it is. And you have to be willing to accept that, that, you know, nature is king. <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah nature is so good at keeping us humble, right? It really yeah, exactly. Puts us in our place. Yeah. And it makes those times when you do make the summit or you reach your destination all the sweeter. So you, I mean, you, you mentioned connection, purpose, gratitude. Those are things that are often considered, I don't know, spiritual in, in some way. Mm -hmm. Is that, is that something, is that a word you use? Is that a, does that sort of seem appropriate to you or is that? The word spiritual? Yeah. Is it spiritual? I don't, um, I don't struggle with, I don't, I don't like wear it on my sleeve. But I, you know, I, I have come to terms with that I am kind of a spiritual person, but I also am quite, you know, I guess agnostic, you know, I, I don't, I don't spend a lot of time in that headspace, you know, asking the question of, uh, you know, is there a soul or, you know, I feel comfortable not knowing those bigger, you know, answers, um, you know, I, I feel yeah, my both both my parents were kind of recovering from various types of Christianity, and without them knowing it, you know, they were trying to fill that void, and they kind of came up with like New Agey, you know, pseudo, you know, they didn't ever dove in with you know both feet, but that was kind of the the household that I grew up in is this kind of like spiritual New Agey kind of stuff, and so I'm kind of versed in that you know language. Um, but I do feel like I have, uh, yeah, I, I don't really know how to explain it, but, you know, I, I have this deep appreciation for the interconnected web of life, um, and, you know, a deep sense of belonging and interconnectedness to it. But, um, you know, I, 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 I watched this awesome interview with this, uh, ethnographer who was hanging out with the, the Hadza of Tanzania, you know, about those yeah. people, you know, there's some of the last hunter gatherers. And uh, the 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 guy doing the, conducting the interview, the ethnographer, was like, you know, I was like, what is the meaning of life? And you know, so the translator asked the question, and the guy, you know, the Hadza guy says, me. And he's like, oh, there must have been a miscommunication, you know, miscommunication. You know, maybe he didn't understand my question, so he asked him again. The translator asked again, and he's like, no, no, it's it's meat. You know, like we need meat. You know, like this is the meaning of life. Is that we're in this pursuit. We have to understand the game, the game, once we, you know, catch it, we, you know, praise it and we thank it. And then it nourishes us. And that's this continuation. And I, I just, that man, that resonated so hard with me. I was like, that's it. You know, like, <laughs> I'm not religious, but if I were, you know, like this guy, I think really did a good job of explaining, you know, like, yeah. 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 And I've, yeah. I've spent some time with the, the well, they've got a lot of different names, the, the Bushmen, the Khoisan. The, you know the the original people basically and and 
that's basically the answer I've gotten as well. It's like, you've got to, it, it, it's about hunting and hunting in this really, it, I mean, it, the only word that I know in the English language to describe it is a spiritual way, right? It's, it's about mm-hmm. communion with, with nature and it's not in the sort of, I don't know, the greenwashed sense that, that most of us understand it of, of conservation and, and protection, which I think in some contexts is, is definitely necessary. Mm-hmm. But in, in, in their context, and I think in any traditional context, it's much more about being, being part of that circle of life. And that means you're willing to eat and be eaten, right? And there's yeah. this sort of deep enmeshment in, in nature. And it's just like, we're, we're part of nature. You know, and, and totally. for them, the whole practice of of tracking and hunting and and gathering as well is is, I mean, yeah, it's it's hard to put into words, but it's it's just a really like visceral experience of just being in the right place, doing the right thing. Yeah, like everything clicks. Yeah. One one of the ways that um, that I've been, in, you know, like this is I'm borrowing it from uh, authors. But, uh, you know, it, it really, again, I think it gets to exactly to the point where we're talking about is that wilderness is a Western colonial construct. And, you know, the kind of the best example of it is a national park, you know, like here's a place that has been preserved. And now when you go there, it's steep, but don't touch, you know, don't have a fire, don't engage with it, don't overturn the stones because, you know, this is, you know, it's a, it's completely an artificial construct. So that's wilderness, you know, this is this colonial concept. Whereas wildness is what we should be striving for is like having this deep interconnected relationship. And it's what all Alaskan natives know intuitively. It's what the, you know, the African, you know, hunter-gatherer tribes that are still allowed to do. It's the people in Greenland, you know, they're still living with this reciprocity and seeing themselves as a part, not as something standing you know, aside and looking behind a glass ceiling and, you know, labeling, you know, it's uh, much more, you know, visceral and you're an active participant, in, you know, in this whole process. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, hundred percent on board. It just, it just seems to me like there's a part of that that's dependent on low population density, right? It's like right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, New York city problem. can't, can't do that, you know? Yeah. And, and so it's like, I spend a lot of time thinking about how can we, sort of take that approach, that relationship with nature and not necessarily like apply it cookie cutter to everyone in the world, because that's, I think that's impossible, but like use that to inspire the development of technology or, you know, the way people might make slightly different choices in, in different parts of the world. You know, how do you take that wisdom and apply it to, you know, the a person living in suburbia, you know? Yeah. Well, one thing that I've been thinking about a lot lately is, you know, so there's, I think a lot of people are gravitating to, you know, like paleo diets. And then when, you know, you start start to learn about, oh, I'm getting, you know, fixing myself by eating, you know, like ancestrally appropriate food. Um, And then you're like, okay, well, what else is there? So then it's like, oh, ancestrally appropriate exercise, you know, how did we evolve exercising? And then you tap into that, you know, there's like, well, as soon as I start doing this, I feel better. I'm not you know, like overly taxing myself, but I'm taxing myself in an appropriate way where I'm getting stronger rather than, you know, what, you know, go to like 
spin class and just wind yourself down every day, you know, you're doing damage, not good, you know? So how to appropriately, you know, looking at it from this ancestral lens. And then it's like, okay, well, I want to tweak this further. And then people are like, well, sleep, you know? So how do you sleep like it, you know, like how we did in the Paleolithic? And, you know, he's, we're doing, you know, you're, and I'm seeing a, this, you know, this burgeoning, well, I don't even know if it's burgeoning, it's probably been happening for a lot longer than I was aware of it, but it feels like it's growing. People, you know, there's a growing online community of people that are like sharing this information and people are, you know, re, you know, discovering optimal health, you know, but a part of it that I haven't really heard talked about is something that, you know, I think a lot of Alaskans just naturally do. It's having like, like everything is a proxy these days, right? Like we're out of the Paleolithic. We made the Faustian bargain with agriculture and industrialization. And here we are, there's seven and a half billion of us. And so now what do we do? So anything that we're going to do is going to be a proxy. But every time we engage in some kind of proxy thing that is aligned with our evolution, we've seemed to get a little bit happier and healthier and more content. This is the thought train that I'm on, you know, like this yeah. has definitely been you know, the last four years, especially. Um, but, it, but another part of it that I don't hear get brought up very often is like primal economy. And so what I mean by that is, you know, and this is something that I feel like could maybe be prescribed, you know, to a bigger population base is, you know, asking yourself the question, is there something in my life that I make money for that I could procure myself, you know, so like the obvious one in this space is like, you know, could I, you know, go out and hunt an animal in the fall and put that meat away rather than supporting, you know, the global, you know, economy, you know, just getting it out the store. But then another one, you know, in Alaska, it's very common. And what we do, you know, we cut our own wood. So rather than paying, you know, the fossil fuel, you know, company to send fuel to our house, we're directly engaged in this process of heating our home and we don't have running water. And not to say that this is a prescription or whatever, I'm just using this as an example of like, you know, ways that we can, you know, we're never going to be able to take this population base that we have now and say, all right, everybody, let's go back to the Paleolithic, but we can create a lot more proxies in our life and kind of take more control over aspects of our life by asking ourselves these kind of like simple questions of like, why am I working so much to pay for something that I could just cut out the middleman and then have this much more intimate experience with hauling the water, chopping the wood, killing the animal, learning how to fish, you know, on and on. Um, you know, and it could be, you know, any number of baby steps, you know, if you only live, if you live in a sky rise apartment, you know, it's like having a little, you know, vegetable garden on your stoop or whatever. You know, but those little steps I see as great acts of resistance and they give you this sense, greater sense of um, connection to your kind of ancestral, you know, programming. Yeah, I think that, that ties back in really beautifully with what you said earlier about as a population, us just being so so passive and used to being sort of entertained and getting our dopamine hits. You know, and I, I often go back to this, this really great interview with Orson Welles from, I don't know, it must have been the 1920s or something where he's talking about, you know, television and how uh, it's, yeah, it's making us just passive receivers of entertainment. And he goes to the Basque country where, where I live now and talks about how great it is to be around kids who, who don't have that. And they're just actively engaged in the environment all the time. And it makes you just a more, a more alive human. 
also true in, in a wider sense where, you know, yes, definitely hunting, gathering, exploring, but it could be something as simple as just like making your own bookshelf or, you know, cooking your own meal. It can, it can be really basic stuff, but if you're looking at your life and just saying, you know, where am I being passive and just receiving things that are pre-made and where am I engaging in the process, being creative and taking it into my own hands. And I think we all have to find our own balance there. Like, you know, you're not making your own clothes, at least as far as I can tell, I'm not making mine. There are things that, you know, make sense to buy, but, but I think at least having that present as a question continually and thinking about it critically, I think is, is just a huge step. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. 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 There's, a, there's a quote that I, I always come back to, but it's, it's come up to me a few times in this, this conversation, which is from Khalil Gibran. I don't know if you know him. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. The, and it's just, I love it. The, the lust for comfort murders the passion of the soul. Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. And it's like, awesome. if, if you look at our economy and I think particularly in the States, but in, in Europe as well, uh, so much of what we do every day is just an effort to be comfortable. Mm -hmm. So much of our time and energy is like, how do I pay the money to get the house, to get the car, to pay for the heating, all these things that at the end of the day are just to make us more comfortable. And I'm, I'm not opposed to comfort. I think, you know, at some, at some point in time, it's, it's necessary. You need to be comfortable and sort of unwind. But if you remove that from this sort of the place it holds for most people, I think, which is just an unquestioned good. Like the more comfortable we are, the better. If you take that away and it's like, wait a minute, how else could I be living? How else could I dedicate my time and energy? It opens up this huge panorama of possibilities where not just in terms of your, like your, your daily energy expenditure and what am I dedicating my time to doing, but also like what kind of job am I doing? Where do I live? It opens up this, this huge realm of, of just possibility. You know, and, and for, for me, that really came home when I'm, so the, the place I live now, it's an old farmhouse. It's at least 500 years old. Um, that's when the first records of it are, but that's when the first records were made. So, you know, it um, and, and looking at the, the walls are, you know, at least a meter thick of, of stone and, and lime and started looking at ways to, to insulate it and thinking like, you know, I want it to be sort of environmentally responsible. I want it to be efficient. Uh, I want it to to make sense on a, on a lot of different levels. You know what what is the the best way I can insulate this this house? You know, and and looking at all kinds of stuff from like sheep wool to you know cork everything. And and what I came down to realize is like well really if if you get down to it the most efficient way to keep it climate controlled is wear a jacket. You know. And <laughs> that way you can you can instantly heat up you can instantly cool nice. down everyone has the yeah. climate control for exactly they where want. they need it uh yeah. it's very minimal investment uh, requires like almost no sacrifice in terms of time and energy just you know invest even if it's like 200 bucks in, in, a, in a nice jacket that's so much cheaper than any kind of insulation you could ever get totally. it's like, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. That's awesome. Awesome. Awesome realization. Yeah. Yeah. Good job. Yeah. 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 And I I think it's so much of, we're just so used to going into these, these sort of patterns of thought that, you know, there's a lot of money behind trying to get us to to buy certain things and dedicate our time and energy to getting the bigger house, the better climate control, whatever it is. And once you sort of get out of that, that cycle and change your relationship. I think it comes down to changing your relationship to, to pain and discomfort, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and once you've got that, then then life opens up in, in a lot of ways. Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you know, thinking about um, appropriate technology, you know, so many of, you know, it's only been, you know, for many Alaskan Native communities in Alaska, you know, since like the 50s that there has been a real shift to modernity and some, you know, even more recent. But, you know, <clears throat> cookie cutter HUD homes, you know, built in, you know, all climates in Alaska, including the Arctic, you know, pretty disastrous, you know, they're like really difficult to heat. Um, and it's, you know, created this uh, kind of like standard American, like nuclear family idea, you know, idea that, you know, a family of five or whatever lives in this home. And then there's next door, there's another family of five. Whereas before it was these, you know, much smaller, more people, you know, much smaller space, more people shared in that space and, you know, able to heat with nothing more than a little seal oil lamp. You know, and that was the light, that was the cooking source, that was the heat, you know, and, you know, very low impact. Um, but yeah, yeah, now, you know, modernity has caught on and everybody is kind of like, you know, they're not like saying that, you know, Alaska natives have, you know, made any worse decision than anybody else because we've all made, you know, it's like this decision that we're all making in this life of uh, engaging in perpetual growth and accepting these ideas that everybody has to have their own home. And when you move out of the house, you know, like, you know, something that really frustrated me kind of, um, is that the, I don't remember when it was, I think it was the, um, maybe it was the big financial crisis, 2008, but you know, like NPR was talking on the program and it kind of came up many times of like how shameful it is that, you know, these college grads, are, you know, going out, you know, after graduating, you know, into it where there's no job market and, you know, so many of them are having to go back and live with their parents and how shameful that is. You know, that was like the narrative. I'm like, wait a minute, that's like, <laughs> nothing. there should be nothing shameful about that. That's the kind of species we are. We were, you know, like our, your children and your, you know, parents and this relationship was, that, that's, that's your people, you know, it's only been recently that we've been so conditioned to think that you have to go out and strike out on your own and make it be bigger and better than it was the previous generation. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, it's kind yeah. of a tangent right there. But. No, no, no. I think that's, that's perfectly in line with what we're talking about. You know, and I think, I think in, in all these cases, it's, I don't want to prescribe like what's right, what's wrong, what's, what's good, what's bad, but it's just right. like, be aware that it's a choice, be aware that it's a right. trade-off. You know, yeah. and like in the Alaska context, like if you're going from sled dogs to a snow machine, like there's pros and cons to that. You know, if right. you're, or like you just said, if you're going to move out of your house, there's there's pros and cons to that with, with all of these. And I think the problem is most of us forget that it's a conscious decision. We see it right. as like it's an inevitable trajectory. As I become a man or a woman or a developed society, whatever it is, like I have to go through these steps. I have to get my own car, my own house, start eating in a certain way, living in a certain way. And it's like, no, that there's, there's nothing inherently inevitable about that. That's just a choice certain people have made. And you're free to do that, but you're also free to, to do something totally different. And the consequences totally. for your life are going to be really different and for the planet. Yeah. And, you you know, and I get that, you know, a sense in Alaska that there's a lot more, um, there's a lot less social stigma associated to, you know, doing it your way and being individual and really having, you know, coming to your own rational decisions even if they fly in the face of, you know, the, the standard American dream story, you know, that, that that's a lovely thing about Alaska is that freedom to make, you know, these kinds of choices 
and not feel ostracized for doing them, you know, yeah. like you might in other places in the world, Europe or. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, for, for you, a, a big part of your, your transition in the past couple of years, I think to, to come to these sort of realizations, this way of thinking has been through food, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, can, yeah. Can you talk more about that? How, like, where you were, say, five years ago, where you are now, how that transition happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, so like I say, you know, I grew up with, you know, pretty, um, you know, hippie, back to the land parents. And so growing up in that context, you know, in rural Alaska, you know, we <clears throat> really ate great food, you know, like we, you know, my dad hunted, um, you know, he first moved to Alaska as a big game guide. Um, and so, you know, we always had, you know, a good wild game. We had a fish wheel. I'm not sure if you know what that is, but it's a, you know, it's a, a fish trap, essentially. We lived on the Copper River, so we always got lots of salmon. My mom made a big garden. And of course, we would go to Anchorage, you know, for canned goods and dry goods and stuff like that. But, you know, so I grew up with this, like, you know, pretty good foundation for, you know, what is healthy, nutritious food. But then, you know, and, and I kind of, you know, I've always like cooked for myself. Um, but especially on trips, what used to be, you know, I kind of just bought into this narrative of that your blood sugar is king. And if you're not always keeping your blood sugar spiked, then you're going to have these, you know, crashes. And so the kinds of meals that I would eat on trips, meals and snacks, I should say, Whereas very high carbohydrate, you know, car- carbohydrate like centric with fat in there too, but you know, carbs were really the bulk of the, you know, the um, the calories. So, for instance, you know, starting a day with you know oatmeal and brown sugar and dried fruit and maybe some butter, but then you know, two hours later, it's not at all strange to be hungry again. And so then you just start opening up the snack bag and that doesn't cease until the end of the day when we eat something like, you know, spaghetti noodles with whatever, you know, ingredients thrown in on top of it. And that, you know, I just accepted that as like, this is, this is how it's done. There is no other way. Um, But it was, yeah, I think it was five falls ago. I was on a trip, um, a fat bike trip in the fall and there was a lot of um pushing our bikes through tussocks um you know hummocks and wet and i had an accident in my um 20s that broke my back and my knee and my knee had been just progressively every year getting kind of achier and achier but on that trip it was just super inflamed and i just didn't feel healthy even though i've been exercising a lot i just didn't feel healthy and it really kind of, you know, kicked my ass, that trip, like particularly kicked my ass. And when I came back, I was in a kind of even a, like, you know, I would say like for me, a severe form of depression, thinking that I was going to have to kind of hang up my hat, stop doing these trips that I didn't have it in me physically anymore. And was starting to wonder if I didn't need to maybe um, get knee surgery, you know, maybe have my knee replaced because it just was hurting so bad all the time. And then went and got a blood panel done and it was like kick a man while he's down. You know, I got these results that were just so sobering and, you know, come to find out very normal, you know, you know, like the results I had 
end up being very normal for, you know, a 40 you know, year old, you know, American adult. But for me, I was like, oh, I can't believe that this is happening. I have, they didn't use the word metabolic syndrome, but that is definitely what it was. So that, that is having high blood sugar, high triglycerides, low HDL, high blood pressure and um, abdominal fat. And I, I, and if you have any, any combination of three or more of those, you're said to have metabolic syndrome. And I had all five and all of that is based in insulin resistance, which, you know, they, they did use that word and that, I mean, it just like, man, I've never been slapped so hard in the face with reality. Uh, you know, and, and really also feeling like how, how could this have happened? Because I've not been, you know, excessive, you know, in my consumption of anything, you know, I've been kind of following the advice, you know, grain heavy, you know, like I never didn't, you know, I always did eat meat, but I kind of had this idea like, oh, too much meat is maybe bad for me. So I was, you know, cutting back. So yeah, that, that, you know, it was like this real slap in the face and I, you know, I'm not, I'm not somebody that, you know, like exposes myself to the world very much. And so I was like really internalizing this by myself and feeling pretty depressed about it, but then, you know, started looking for, you know, how do I dig my way out of this hole that doesn't involve being on a bunch of pharmaceuticals for the rest of my life, which is what they prescribe, you know, like immediately they're like, oh, well, we know this, you know, here's where you're going to take this for that and this for that and this for that. I'm like, whoop, whoop, oh, no, no, hold on, give me a minute. And it, it was this kind of real lucky combination. There was no, there was no one article, and there was, certainly was no buddy in my life. I didn't have any peer or a friend that turned me on to it. But I started, you know, learning, hearing a little bit about, you know, keto and low carb, and thought it just sounded crazy at first, and. And then started hearing a little bit about intermittent fasting. And that to me, that was fascinating to me. I was like, wow, people can really like skip meals. Like I just never heard of it, you know, beyond like, you know, at a kind of more like maybe a spiritual fast or whatever, but the idea of like having it be a part of like how you operate, you know, that I only eat once a day or twice a day. Like to me, that just seemed absolutely unbelievable. And then, you know, so I'm like kind of dancing around these topics and like picking up little nuggets here and there, but still haven't like committed anything. And then I went to a presentation. There was a a Native American PhD uh, from lower 48 that was in Alaska giving presentations around the state and he gave it here in Homer. And his thing is called neural, neural decolonization, neuro decolonization. And he's talking about, you know, how we can decolonize our, you know, ourselves and not just for indigenous people but you know specifically for indigenous people but open to anybody that's open to the idea of decolonizing their brain and and he was very prescriptive and he had these four main you know like kind of takeaway things like if if you do this you will be working to decolonize yourself and part of what he talked about is ancestral diets and intermittent fasting and in this context of his greater speech like it just it was like a lightning rod and I was like, this is it. You know, like th- that was the moment where I was like the aha, like, I, okay, now I really feel committed to like jumping into this with both feet. And then just started reading everything I could get my hands on. And once I committed, you know, whole hog, um, broke these, you know, addictions that I'd had with food for a long time and switched to a fat burning metabolism, which I just, again, I was just like, when I first, you know, like 
was reading about that, like really you can you can change your mitochondria to prefer fat. That just seems so radical to me. It's like, how cool is that? You know, and like if I do this, I'll that'll happen. Like that'll be the result, you know, such a sense of empowerment. Fuck, it was so cool. It still is. And uh, and so I just you know, down the rabbit hole and immediately started getting better, you know, like right off the bat, you know, like my knee started hurting less. I started losing weight effortlessly, you know, like, and then it, you know, it was like uh, two years before I went and got the blood panel again, and nervously, you know, I'm like, oh, you know, I'm eating all this fat and everybody says all fat is bad. All of my metabolic syndrome was, you know, completely normalized, you know, clean bill of health, um, except for, you know, my LDL, which that happens, you know, in this presence. And, you know, there's a strong argument that that is not the risk factor, you know, for heart, car, you know, for coronary heart disease, all the biggest risk factors are metabolic, you know, they're type two diabetes and obesity and high triglycerides, high blood sugar, et cetera. Those are the risk factors. LDL doesn't make the top 10. So I feel like in the context of overall health, you know, like I've regained that and continue to just go down the rabbit hole and, you know, make more tweaks and adjust and learn. And then, but then it, you know, gets to this issue of like, well, how do you know, you know, we were talking about the, at the beginning, like, what do you do with this? How do you, you know, you want other people to feel healthy too. And you want the world to feel healthy. You know, is this something, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not prescriptive in any of this to anybody, but I, I, you know, I have seen other friends now, you know, find health with this and like, you know, yeah. Yeah. So are you, are you like full on ketogenic now or what, what is your current sort of situation? I mean, yes, the answer is full on ketogenic by default, because these days I'm a carnivore, you know, I eat um, just meat based diet. So, you know, ketones are my energy substrate yeah. and the only glucose I get, my body produces it itself. Okay. Okay. So how does that, how does that affect your training? Do you notice it gives you a different kind of energy? Um, like if uh, basically, let me, let me just lay this out and then you can, you know, poke any holes in it you want. It seems to me like basically if we look at fat metabolism versus sugar metabolism, we can think of sort of low intensity versus high intensity. Like if it were running zone two versus zone five, right? Yep. Running right. a marathon or an ultra versus, you know, well, I guess if you're at Kipchoge level, you're, you're, you're going to be running a marathon. Like most people can't even sprint that fast. Right. So it, there is definitely a gray right. area, but if we're talking about like fat metabolism, giving like a stable source of energy, that's kind of like the diesel engine just kind of keeps on going, keeps on going. And then the sugar metabolism is going to be like super fast burst of energy, like sprint. And then as, as fast as it comes on, it dies down, you know? Yep. Um, so I guess I'm curious, like as your diet has transitioned, has your experience of the energy you have, the type of energy you have, has that changed? And how has that train changed your, your training or just your, your level of activity, the type of activity you do? Yeah. Great, great question. And it's something I've certainly thought about and have one other friend here in Alaska who has done the deep dive rabbit hole um, down, you know, this ancestral dietary pathway with me, who is an athlete in a very different way than I am. So I typically am the zone two, you know, steady state 
low intensity, what are they, lists or whatever, you know, when we're on these bike trips, it is not a full out exertion, huffing and puffing. We can have a conversation, you know, we're in, I'm in that perfect metabolic state to be utilizing fat for fuel. Yeah. Um, and that has been my kind of like my, always my go-to of any type of exercise that I get the vast majority of it's that, you know, low intensity, steady state. Um, but then, you know, I do strength training and I do do the, um, you know, periods of the high intensity interval training. And I found that all of those things, you know, like I'm taking this from other people who are much more knowledgeable than me, but all of these kind of are proxies again, you know, uh, uh, of our ancestral, you know, programming as a species. We did not run marathons at zone seven, you know, in the Paleolithic. You ran full on sprints when you were being chased or when you were chasing prey, but they were short little bursts, right? We lifted heavy stuff periodically, but mostly what we did is we just walked. You know, we covered a lot of ground or, you know, gently jogging, but it's in that, you know, that state. So I think there's an argument for those three being the most like human forms of exercise. There's nothing wrong with pushing yourself into this superhuman state. But I think that people that do go into that superhuman form of, you know, upper zone, you know, full on, you know, like all out um, sprinting or, you know, like, you know, longer marathon style um, that you then have to kind of get outside of that metabolic state. You are, you're not going to, you're not going to be able to produce enough glucose probably, you know, as far as I know, I think that's the deal. And that's certainly the deal with my friend who, you know, up here in Alaska, we have uh, a lot of um, mountain, mountain races and sewer is another community I lived in. It's a 3,200 foot peak and people, you know, race, you know, run up the road, climb the mountain, back down, sub one hour, you know, it's unbelievable. And she's one of those athletes. And, you know, when she first got into low carb, she was like, this is awesome. I have all this liberation. I don't have to eat. I can go for hours. But then she started tanking and, you know, has had to kind of, she's made a lot of different tweaks, um, both to the nutrition and to her exercise to try to regain health again. But I never had that problem because that's, you know, outside of what I ever thought was fun. <laughs> yeah. Running all out up a mountain just never struck me as like a, you know, a fun thing to do, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm, you know, like it, it works just super well for me to be, you know, in the, that burning metabolism state, but you know, there are these, uh, you know, one of the most famous carnivore doctors, uh, Sean Baker, you know, he's, he, I think he's like 56 or something. He still holds the world record for, uh, um, uh, rowing speed. Um, you know, and that's a full glycolytic, you know, not all out. Um, so, you know, it may be possible too, depending on how long you let yourself condition and, yeah. you know, make those pathways work better. Yeah. yeah. I think it's, it's really complex. And I think here too, it's, it's important. I see it as like get inspired by the philosophy, by the idea, like enough to try it out, but then we always have to be our own sort of litmus test and be like, okay, is this working for me? Because there's so right. many things that sound good on paper, so many theories, so many ideas, but it's like, okay, does this work in my life? Does it work in my context? Why or why not? And what can I do to adjust mm -hmm. it? Yeah. 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 
I think the, the, the connection between like, okay, what, what is your dietary metabolism? Like, what are you, what are you prioritizing? What are you fostering in your body? Then how are you training? How do those two intersect? And then the third part of the, the puzzle for me is, is also the, the temperature or the, the season we're in, you know, and how does that, is that a steady state throughout the year? Do you, does your experience change winter to summer? How do, how do you deal with that? Yeah, that's, it's really interesting. I was actually just asked uh, that question the other day by that same guy that I was just talking about. He interviewed me um, for his podcast. And, you know, it, it, I, you know, it's now been, it was like two months. So it's almost been three years now that I've been, you know, strict carnivore. Mm-hmm. And then a year and change beyond that was doing, you know, just keto. And so now, you know, with the, this amount of insight that I have, you know, like, that he asked a very similar question. And the story that I kind of wanted to tell that I neglected to tell then was even before I knew about this, you know, I always knew that fat was more, you know, like the thing you want in there. And there was this, you know, great example of this one time, um, my partner and I, we biked, you know, it was like over 1100 miles and it took us over a month. It was like a long trip. And it was our last day. We were going to be making it to our destination of Kotzebue. And it was really cold. It was like 25, 30 below. And we, we met an Anupiak man coming on his snow machine towards us, you know, the first people that have ever biked here. So, you know, everybody that sees the stop is like, Whoa, what the hell are you doing here? Yeah. Um, and, uh, and he'd been out caribou hunting for elders and he dropped off a bunch of, you know, caribou meat in Kotzebue and somebody had given him a bunch of muktuk and he asked if we liked muktuk. And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. So muktuk, if you don't know, is uh, it's the outer layer of skin and fat of whale. And typically when people say muktuk, what they're usually referring to is bowhead whale. And that's what he had. And we're like, oh yeah, you know, I grew up eating it. It's awesome. And so he gave us this big chunk of it. You know, it was like six or seven pounds. And, you know, just so stoked. Like, what a treat. Thank you so much, right? And in the back of my head, I'm like, oh, this is going to be so great. You know, go home and share this with family and, you know, like share it around. Right. And so we went into this, finally got to this shelter cabin. And like I said, it was just brutal cold. And we ended up eating like half the block. And it was just an absurd amount, like way more than you would assume that you would even be able to choke down. But we were just like so hungry for the fat, you know. And then the rest of the day, the cold was gone. And we never stopped again, you know, except for maybe to pee or whatever, you know, and usually, you know, you constantly up and down tanking. So I'd already kind of experienced this and knew it, you know, on a very deep level that, you know, fat, you want more fat in the winter when it's cold, like that's your energy, you know, like that's, what's going to keep you warm. And some of it might be a little bit, you know, psychosomatic, but you know, like definitely when you eat enough of it, you, you, you know, you don't feel the need. And especially when you're in a fat burning metabolism state, then you don't feel hungry again and you don't get those crashes. So that's been just this freedom that I have now. So, you know, in general now, you know, especially thinking about the winter trips, you know, I don't eat breakfast when I'm at home. I just do one meal a day and it's in the night, but you know, on trips, uh, just coffee, black coffee in the morning. And then it's usually about three or four, you know, it's like, way into the day before we stop and make one more cup of instant coffee with heavy cream powder and then some like jerky or some smoked salmon and it's not a meal you know it's just like a little nice stop cool down for a minute you know warm your insides with the hot drink and then 
you know, it's maybe 500 calories. It's probably not, not even that much. And then we're going again. And then it's not till the end of the day when all the chores are done. And then we make one big meal and it's, you know, tons of fat, you know, in that meal. And then that just burns all through the night, you know, run, runs through the night and all through the day, you know? So that's really the formula that I've landed on these days. And, you know, and it, maybe it changes a little bit in the summer to, you know, like this is the thing when he asked it, he's like, you know, do you feel this big variation in the seasons? I'm like, well, I don't really change it that much. You know, like I might eat less, but I still feel like I'm getting, you know, hitting my protein minimums by far, you know, like every time I eat, you know, like I'm definitely getting more than what is the, you know, considered the minimum. And then more or less fat, just kind of depending on how energetic I am, but it's an intuitive thing. It's not, I'm not like consciously thinking like, Oh, I'm going to have X amount of grams of fat or whatever. Yeah. It's just like, I let my, you know, that was one of the other things I kind of thought, you know, like being in a diet state, you know, you're always having to police yourself and think about these things, you know, and weighing things out. I'm like, Oh God, I'll never be able to follow through with that. Cause that's just not how my brain works. And that, you know, like this, this has become so the opposite of that, you know, it's just this very intuitive, you know, like trusting my hunger signals, knowing that leptin, you know, will trick, you know, will trip on when I've reached that point where I'm like, I'm done. And then I just stop, you know, whereas before when it's a car high carb diet, I can just keep eating, you know, get done with a trip, especially and just be a dumpster, you know, just eating donuts and pizza. And, blah, and then finally you're like, oh God, I feel like, you know, it's your stretch receptors that have reached their max, not leptin, you know, yeah. like I was so out of tune with myself before, you know, and now it's just like, I know, you know, like, okay, that was that last bite. That was it. I'm done. You know. It's the beauty of going back to a diet. I mean, for me, a key concept is, is nutrient density, right? And minimal processing. When you're eating healthy food that's in line with our evolutionary biology, it's like, yeah, you don't need to weigh things out. You don't need to calculate it. Your body knows. Exactly. When you get off that train and you're eating super refined carbs with all kinds of preservatives and additives and chemicals designed to keep you hungry, then yeah, then it seems impossible. And, you know, for, for someone who's in that state saying, well, just listen to your body, it knows. It sounds crazy because it's like, well, my body just wants pizza and, and Coca-Cola. It's like, well, wait, wait, wait. You have to sort of get off that, retrain your metabolism, get it back onto a sort of stable cycle. And then you can yeah. listen to your body. And then it's just, it's, it's a no brainer. You literally don't have to think about it. It's just, you feel it and it's obvious. Yeah. 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 Metabolism and hormones, you know, like the hormones are such major regulators of yeah. how we, you know, how we detect when we're hungry, how we know when we're full, you know, the, all these, and we, you know, we, we're not given that blueprint, you know, in the standard American context, you know, like we're, you know, in fact, we're encouraged not to, I think, you know, I feel like the big, big pharma and big food are working hand in hand to keep us in the dark, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. keep buying Coca-Cola, you know, like yeah. we'll get you coming and going. <laughs> yeah. And it's the, it, I think so much of it too, is like the, focus on calories, you know, which right. it sort of makes sense in a very abstract sense, like a laboratory setting. But yeah. I mean, to me, what I always tell people is just look at the way a calorie is measured. You'll see instantly that it makes absolutely no sense when it comes to our diet. You know, and like, what is a yeah. calorie? It's like take one gram of a substance, you put it in pure oxygen inside a one centimeter cube, that's pure gold and you ignite it. 
and then it's it's inside a container of water. I forget if it's like ten deciliters or whatever it is, um, and you just see how what's the temperature change of that water, mm-hmm. right? So it's a great way to to measure the energy if you want to compare like the energy in plastic versus wood versus sugar. Like perfect, you see how much energy is in it, but that obviously has no connection to what's going on when we put it into our body. Like there's a very complex biological mechanism that's happening. And like one, one gram of plastic is not going to have the same effect as one gram of meat, even if it's like the same calorie value. Right. Exactly. And right. When I heard that, like, I think it was an undergrad, I was just like, Holy shit. Like, what are we doing? This is Mm -hmm. so ridiculous. Like it has. And I think one of the best analogies that I've heard that kind of like really helps, you know, like paint the picture on the difference between, you know, the kinds of calories are, you know, some calories are kindling and some calories are logs, you know, and in our society, we're, you know, we're promoted to eat kindling all the time, you know, like, so you're getting this little fire going and it burns out. And so you've got to have another kindling fire again, and then it burns out and you have another little, and the meanwhile, you know, your pancreas is like, oh my God, you keep flooding me. You know, more insulin, more insulin, more insulin. And then you get insulin resistance and you get diabetes, you know, like, uh, yeah. Uh, whereas, you know, you throw the log on the fire and you're good for, you know, all day. Yeah. 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 And I think that for the temperature piece, the seasonality piece, I think is really interesting. And my sort of intuition is that, I mean, even I've, I've spent quite a few summers in Alaska and it's, it's warm by Alaskan standards, but I think, you know, arguably by our evolutionary standards, like we're all from Africa originally, like right. it's not, it's not that warm. Right. right. So that there's a sense where I think for an Alaskan or a Siberian or something, it might make sense to stay in that fat metabolism all year long. Where I live now in, in Northern Spain, it's like summer gets hot. You know, we've got weeks where it's over a hundred and, mm-hmm. you know, I'm a pretty active person. I, I do long distance running and stuff. And it's like, if I'm still staying in a fat metabolism the same way through winter and summer, I suffer a lot in summer and I've definitely got to change things up. Oh, interesting. Yeah. You know, and, and it's just another piece where I, I think it's really important to, to stay away from prescriptive. Dogmatic. You know, thinking. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. it's like, we, we got to be flexible. We got to adjust. And so for me, like I got, I got into ice bathing and that whole sort of just loving the cold about, I don't know, four or five years ago. Mm-hmm. And there was a part of me was like, just go, 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 like all winter, all summer. And then in summer, I started getting heat stroke, you mm-hmm. know, and, and like literally like passing out because my body was just like, what are you doing? Like, are we hot? Or are we cold? Like, get it straight, you know? And so then I started switching up a bit and it's like, okay, but, you know, got to figure this out. So in, in summer now I do heat training. I do like really intense sauna sessions and, and really try to get my metabolism shifted to be optimal in the summer. And then now like a transition time for me when, uh, you know, autumn is here, winter's coming, I'm sort of toning down on the heat, ramping up the cold, changing my metabolism as well. And it's, you know, where, where I live, it's, it's very easy to, to see how the shift in seasons also changes your diet, changes your metabolism, like in the summer, you're going to have a lot of fruit. You're going to have a lot of vegetables. Like that's just what there is in the fall, in the winter, it's going to be much higher fat, you know, more animal products. And it's just, it's just falling into that, that rhythm of, of the place where I am, you know? And so I, yeah. I think that there is a part that's like ancestral and like, what is our biology, but it's also 
what is the place I'm living in and how do I adapt to that and how does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It makes a lot of sense. And, you know, uh, you know, even though, you know, I know that there are, you know, plenty of examples of, you know, people that live more equatorial and that stay, you know, using fat as their fuel, like the Maasai, for example. Um, you know, I, I do think that, uh, you know, it, it is an interesting point you raise about how here, you know, in Alaska, you know, even in the summer, you know, like with the trips we did this summer, you know, the average daily temperature was probably low fifties, you know, Fahrenheit, you know, like not hot, you know, you're never like sunbathing with your shirt off. You know? <laughs> yeah. So I think that, that probably does, you know, play a part of a bigger part than what I maybe had even, you know, pondered about how there isn't a lot of variation for me that I've found, you know, like I'm not, you know, I don't feel like I need to make big seasonal tweaks here. It's more like I've just found something that works. And if I need more energy, then I eat some more fat. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm curious about the timing of your meal as well, because my sense is that probably works well in Alaska because you're still burning energy at night. You're still having to stay warm. Yeah. I think for, for most people in the lower 48 or just in a place where it's not so cold, that's probably suboptimal. Like that's the way sumo wrestlers gain weight is with their one meal a day and they eat at night. But they also eat tremendous amount of carbohydrates. Like they know that that's how you put on the fat is like, it's nice, you know? Well, I, I mean, maybe, maybe I'm, but I think it's, yeah, it's, it's a big bowl of soup. It's like full of veggies, fish stock, pork, like it's, but they're the energy substrate, you know, like they're, they're, you know, the, of the three macronutrients, what they're getting the most of is carbohydrates hands down. Like that's how they're getting that big. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. But, um, about the recipes. but yeah, I'm just, but so, you know, for me, there's with that. morning tonight. That. To some degree. Um, and you know, this is probably something that I should kick myself a little harder, you know, get a little stricter about. Um, but I, you know, so ghrelin, the hunger hormone, right? And so before, you know, when I first started, you know, getting into intermittent fasting, you know, I'm never that big at home of eating, you know, I didn't ever like wake up and be like, I have to eat breakfast. You know, I've never had that. So you know, going, you know, it, before it would have been like, you know, maybe 10 or 11, I would think of like having, you know, something light and then lunch and dinner or whatever and snacks in between. And so skipping breakfast was no problem. But then about noon or so, I'm like, you know, oh yeah, I'm getting hunger, but I've been inoculated to the idea. Like, okay, you, you know, ride the wave, you know, ghrelin will pass and you'll get over it. And so now I've really kind of conditioned myself to like, it's one meal a day at the end of the day. And that is the time. So if I'm going to do a 36 or a 48 or a 72 hour fast, it's going to bed without eating that it is the hardest time for me on the first night, you know, cause that's when I've, that's the programming that's in there now, like, okay, it's seven o'clock. Now it's time to eat. And if nine o'clock comes around and I still haven't obliged, you know, I get that another, you know, I want to eat. Um, but I've, I've read, you know, several articles that say that it's actually more advantageous to eat. If you're going to do one meal a day, eat earlier in the day, um, give yourself, you know, that, time and i'm trying to remember at this time something about you know creating a better circadian rhythm and there's something else to it but i really have just found that this this formula is again it's like not having to think about it 
you know, like it's just, it's reflexive at this point. And I'm able to, you know, I feel like where I'm at now is at this kind of like maintenance stage. And there are like these certain tweaks that I would like to make every now and then, but what I'm doing is working at a really nice level. And, you know, so I've been kind of maybe stuck here for a while, not experimenting as much as I maybe should, but yeah. yeah. But I do do periodic longer fasts, you know, I'll do, you know, like, you know, this month I've done a couple like 40 plus hour, 42 hour fasts. Um, I like to try to get, you know, I got a five day fast in the spring and I'd like to do another one of those again, you know, pretty soon. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I just came out of a 75 hour fast. Nice. So just, and, uh, yeah, man, it's good stuff. It's really good. Stuff. So what, for you, what, what are the, what, where are the times when it's, where you're really having to, you know, use willpower? Yeah. I mean, so, so my big thing is, is balance being a dynamic state rather than a steady state. Mm -hmm. My mind really likes formulas and I like to apply theory to practice. And I'm like, okay, this is the way, you know, my ancestors did it. So this is the way I have to do it. This is good. This is bad. And like, it's so easy for me to, to slip into that. And I try mm -hmm. really hard to, to sort of push against that and stay flexible. And my, actually the, um, for me, a major transition point was my time with uh, the San people, the, the Bushmen and, so and cool. seeing yeah, like, they are allergic to routine. Like there is no routine. And you, you hear these, these so-called experts who are like, you know, traditionally, like we've evolved to sleep in this way and to eat in this way and whatever. And it's like, well, have you spent time with indigenous people? Like they don't apply, like they don't do any of that. You yeah. know, like all I've spent time in the Amazon as well. And, and it's like, no one sleeps eight hours through the night, like I'll, especially when it's hot out in, in the summer, like social hour is like from 2 a.m. to 4 a.m. And people yeah. are like up around, they're talking, they're laughing. It's like, it's totally different ballgame, you know? And so, so to me, it's like, it's always interesting to read the studies. It's interesting to learn the theory, but we've got to stay flexible and keep experimenting, right. you know? Yeah. And so, so for me, like the way I apply that to, to my diet is like, I try not to fall into routine. So I'll like sometimes late in the morning, sometimes late at night, uh, sometimes I'll have multiple meals um, and, and trying to, yeah, just keep that flexible. And, and, you know, it's, it's tricky because there's a lot of different variables. There's, you know, how active am I being? What kind of exercise am I doing? Um, what kind of mental activity do I have? You know, there's, there's a lot of different factors and it's, it can be tricky to isolate variables there and, and really understand it. But to me, the, the best way to fast is to be in nature and just to, for me, it's, it's, it's sort of like a mini retreat. So it's like, yeah, 72 hours in nature, no eating. I give myself water and, and some salt in the water and staying relatively active, but like walking rather than running. I used to do it running and that gets dangerous, especially when you're in the mountains, like running downhill. I had some really close calls. So I was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to stay walking. And then, and then for me, it's, it's not, there isn't like a specific time of day when that, that happens, when I, I feel hungry, it's more, it just kind of comes and goes. And, and for me, it's, it's just an, it's an opportunity to just practice. I don't know what, what Buddhists would call sort of mindfulness or, you know, just observing yourself and in a negative way. Just being like, okay, I feel hungry. You know, okay, I feel tired, you know, but I'm just gonna. So just to be clear, you, you remove yourself from your kind of conventional obligations when you do these longer fasts. I do. Like I if you're to. not 
trying to be like productive and work and all that kind of stuff. I, I try to be as unproductive as possible. Um, nice. This last time I did, I did have to do a bit of work. So I, I got a, a Starlink set up. I can have, I can just park the car. I can have a, a base there where I can have internet and do some email, you know, maybe an hour or two. Um, but I, I think ideally is definitely no technology. Um, mm. Just, you know, alone in nature. I like to go barefoot as well. Um, and just yeah. really just just get out in it and and you know if you can bring a little bit of psychedelics along that's even better <laughs> you know and, yeah. and really just just a deep reset you know and it's, it's incredible how fast it can be you know it's it's i mean if you can do it for a month or two like amazing but if you can do a long weekend like that that is huge it's huge yeah. and it's it's amazing how quickly we fall back into it's again it's not it's not uh it's not intellectual. It's just a feeling of like, this is right. This is good. Mm -hmm. You know? Well, you know, that's something that, you know, I really kind of, you know, again, not trying to push the dogma of, you know, uh, ketogenic diet states, but, uh, or metabolic state, but, you know, it, it took me a while to kind of make this connection of like that, you know, th this is something that's been measured, you know, that people take cognition tests, beef, you know, in a, uh, you know, glucose state, metabolism state, and then in a ketosis state, and they have better cognition, you know, and I, I think that's just like wickedly fascinating from this ancestral point of view, like, of course, it makes so much sense. If you've been, you know, you and your clan have not had food for five days, you still have to be wicked smart, you have to be on your game even more so because you're having to outthink very cunning prey, you know? So, you know, it, it, it makes sense in that kind of context, but then I was like, you know, it also makes sense from this like religious perspective too, that if you, you know, if you're going into the desert to fast for a week, your cognition is through the roof, you know, like you're flooding your brain with ketones and, you know, you're just thinking on this like better level, you know, you're thinking better, you know? And that's, I think, that what helps maybe explain some of the, you know, the fascination that, you know, various prophets, you know, throughout history of a whole spectrum of religions have, you know, shared in this, like, one thing that they all think fasting is awesome. <laughs> yeah. 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 Different lessons they've taken away and different, you know, like things they've gone back and said to their people, like, hey, here's, I found the truth. <laughs> that's all different, but... You know, the, uh, the way to get there is maybe has a common, you know, root cause. Yeah. Yeah. And I think when, when you were first talking about your, your relationship with nature and your, your expeditions in general, what, what comes out for me is, is a sense of, of finding our place, you know, like who am I as a human being? And, yeah. and that's inevitably tied to a sense of awe at, you know, the, the, largeness of nature and the power of nature and that to me that's that's the root of religious experience and any yeah. you look at any religion it's just a structured attempt to try and explain that feeling you know and i think that's why the debate about god doesn't go away is because that feeling is real and it's powerful mm -hmm. to me the thing is just when you start giving a name to it and saying well therefore you have to follow these rules and pay money to these people like that's that's when things get weird right mm -hmm. but I think, you know, I, I grew up in a, in a pretty quote unquote liberal environment where it was sort of frowned upon to, to be religious. And, and mm. oftentimes I think, you know, we, we get caught up in the, the contradictions of logic and, you know, the scientific evidence that such and such didn't really happen, but it's like, okay, that's, that's great. But that doesn't mean the experience of awe 
and beauty and like the our smallness in 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 so many ways like that's that's fundamental to, to being human right and that's to me that's like the fundamental human experience you know and i think what one term that i you know kind of again like half jokingly used a while ago but i do actually mean it is that uh, uh i consider myself a devout agnostic and and what i mean is that i understand enough to know that i cannot understand you know the universe, you know, or however you want to, you know, try to say that, you know, we, we know that there are other spectrums of light that we can't absorb. You know, yeah. I experienced the world in five senses and we have, you know, I, I experienced the world in three dimensions. We know there are more dimensions. So I know enough to know that there is a whole bunch that I can't know. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm in absolute awe of that mystery, but, you know, and I'm, but I'm not, uh, yeah, again, you know, I, I see in Alaska, but I think that it's all over the world. You know, I've seen a lot of the harm that has come from, you know, religion, you know, and my, you know, grade school experience was awful with, uh, you know, being told what the fiery lake of hell was, which is where me and all the native kids in the village were going to go because we were heathens, you know, we didn't believe in God. So, eternity for us was going to be a fiery lake of hell <laughs> they tell me it's a little you know like fucking six and seven years old you know so cruel and but that's nothing compared to you know what a lot of alaska native kids you know underwent you know like the entire you know loss of language and cultural identity you know is at the hands of you know religious ideology so i have some contempt too <laughs> you know like um but at the same time, you know, I think you asked the question, are you spiritual? And I think the answer to that question is yes. But uh, yeah, I also see the dark side of religion too. And yeah. I think that it's important to, you know, yeah, to, to hold both in your head simultaneously, which for me is no problem. Yeah, yeah, definitely, mm -hmm. definitely. Yeah, I see religion is, is sort of co-opting and commercializing the, the religious experience or spiritual experience. And saying like you want access to that, you got to come to my church, you got to pray in my my way, and you got to pay me money. And it's like, right. no, no, don't need to do that, you know. And so, so I mean, uh, a large part of my work now, I I, I work as a, a psychoanalytic therapist among other things. Um, and so that's so fascinating. I'm like so intrigued by that. It's awesome. Yeah. Well, it's I mean, I see it just as an extension of of everything we've been talking about, right? And and to me, the sort of underlying thread is the concept of of hormesis which is yeah. just, you know, a, acute stress in, in a specific way, in a, in a controlled manner, um, yeah. creates this cascade of benefits, which can be on the physical plane, can be on the psychological plane, and eventually gets you to the spiritual plane. So, so what I, the concept I, I really come back to again and again is like existential hormesis. And that, that for me is like, when you're, you know, you, so we can talk about it in simpler terms in, in exercise, right? Like when you go to the gym to work out, you lift a lot of weight yep. for a short amount of time. There's some muscle. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then you relax and your muscles grow. Right. right. Everyone knows that. If you take those same weights and like tie them to your wrists uh, and just have them hanging off your arms all day, like you're going to get majorly injured. Right. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and, and so we, we all sort of intuitively understand acute that. stress versus chronic stress. Yeah. Yeah. A, exactly. a dab of acute stress is really beneficial. Chronic stress will kill you. <laughs> exactly. exactly. So you can apply that to, to food, you know, with, with fasting, intermittent fasting. Uh, to heat, to cold, exercise, 
breathwork and and there's those realms have all been you know more or less studied and and there's you know a, a lot of interest around the world about that but we can also take it into a more psychological and eventually yeah spiritual Esoteric. Uh -huh. yeah yeah where it can be about sort of contact and isolation it can be about time in a in a designed environment versus an evolved environment it can be about uh sort of having control or, or releasing control and it, it can be about um sort of giving yourself to what can only be described as a higher power you know and i think that that is in essence what the psychedelic experience is it's like i'm going to give my mind my experience to something that's just beyond my control you know mm -hmm. there's, there's something really deeply healing about that as as sort of a, a reset you know and then yeah. and then the work always and so are you are you working with people that are like trying to recover from you know like deep trauma like ptsd like you know people that have had bad you know wartime experiences and things like that it, it can be that it definitely can be um yeah. i would say there's sort of two two sort of aspects there, there are definitely people who have kind of they've been through every other kind of therapy there is they've been on and off meds whatever and like nothing's working and they're like okay we'll give it a shot and so there it can be i can be ptsd it can be depression anxiety you know substance abuse uh you know all, all kinds of stuff um right. then there's a, there's another sort of say type of person or, or realm of interest that's it's much more about sort of self-discovery and just basically the sense that like there's there's something more not sure what it is not sure how to get there but like this can't be it right and and so and, and those two seem very different on the surface but often in the end they're, they're very very similar right and I, I think at least the people who who end up coming to me um often underneath these seemingly like diagnosable conditions there's often sort of an, an existential disconnect and yeah. so so a lot of the the my therapeutic modality is is through hormesis you know and it's using breath using heat using cold using fasting using uh different forms of of exercise and using the psychedelics in a way that's sort of helping people to reconnect to what i call like your inner nature right and just realign mm -hmm. yeah and so so that often has sort of surprising secondary effects where it's like oh my god all of a sudden depression just isn't an issue or like yeah why, why would I keep drinking? That's ridiculous. You know, that, that mm -hmm. thing. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's just so fascinating. You know, and my, my experience, you know, came at a pretty young age, you know, which I think a lot of, in our, in our contemporary culture, we'd be like, Oh, 15 is when you started experimenting with, you know, hallucinogenics. But I feel, I feel like so charmed that that was when I first had my first experiences because I can imagine the kind of person that I was before and then had these epiphanies through psychedelic, you know, experiences. And what I've the way I've always articulated it is that I became self-conscious. And I think usually when we use that term, that's like a kind of a negative thing. But I, I mean it in a very positive way. I became conscious of my how I carry myself and how I put myself out to the world. And it's something that I. <clears throat> without ever, you know, hearing from somebody, whether or not they've had, you know, a psychedelic experience, you can kind of tell, you know, on a gut level, people that have, you know, there's, there's this um, openness to them and this kind of humility to them that is, you know, distinct 
to, you know, you can really tell sometimes when the people really haven't had that experience, you know, they're very certain about life and they have rules and <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It's so fascinating. Have you read uh, anti-fragile? Speaking I have Hormesis. There's a guy who's taken this idea of, you know, hormesis uh, into a whole bunch of different realms and, you know, his, it's economics and, you know, but, but he, you know, really is his whole philosophy is based around um, how, you know, certain systems are fragile, certain systems are resilient, but, you know, humans in particular are an example of something that actually gets better. You know, we, we improve. So we're not just resilient. You know, it's like if you have a package that you're going to send in the mail that has glass in it, you're like fragile. But, you know, if it was just, you know, cardboard that you were sending you could say you know resilient but that doesn't describe you know what happens to you know a human being that fasts or does cold exposure or whatever we actually get stronger we get better from that experience of that adversity you know yeah. and you know, thinking back to you know your original question about how would you you know answer to somebody it's like why the hell do you do these crazy trips on a fat bike you know like well it kind of makes me better <laughs> you know like and I, I don't mean that in some like egotistical way at all like i just mean that like it uh yeah you know, it's that adversity that you know gives us this greater sense of connection and physicality and men mental clarity and you know it's like too many things to list yeah yeah, yeah i think you would enjoy that book to, to circle back around to what you said about the, the Hadza, you know, it, it, it's not that it gives us purpose and meaning to life. It's that it dissolves that question. It makes it irrelevant. Yeah. You know, I, I, I see that question as like, it's a good philosophical question, but I actually see it as a symptom of an environmental disconnect. Like mm -hmm. if you're living in alignment, so you can talk about it in terms of like uh, neurological integration or mind body integration. Like if things are in line, if, if things are working well, that question just ceases to be a question. It's just like, right. it's good. Things are right. Why question it? Well, you know, so here's an interesting thing. And I've been, you know, reading a couple authors lately that are talking about this idea that, you know, all symbolic thought is very recent in our, you know, human evolution. You know, we only see cave paintings that go back 30, 40,000 years. And for the vast period of time, there's no evidence of, you know, definitely no like written language and there, but there's not like cave art. There aren't like, you know, the, the, you know, the, the, the technology wasn't adorned, you know, it was functional. And there's, you know, the, this theory that these people are playing with is that when you're living in such an immediate, you know, relationship with the natural world, these sorts of ponderings and musings that we're so troubled with now are just irrelevant. Like you say, you know, like that all the meaning is there the same as it is for a lion or a gazelle or a polar bear or whatever. You're just having this open-ended relationship with the natural world around you, you know? And so this chattering monkey, you know, that the Buddhists tell us we need to quiet, you know, it just wasn't a problem then. And so we didn't have to like, you know, have symbolic thought to try to put meaning to these things we were, you know, considering. And that yeah, symbolic thought is, a, you know, like, these, these people are kind of hardcore, the authors I'm reading are kind of hardcore in their, certainly in their, you know, um, condemnation of the Neolithic revolution, that, that was like the biggest mistake that our species has ever made. And it's taken us to where we are now in the Anthropocene. Um, but that, you know, that breakdown of our lack of connectedness to the natural world 
has even deeper origins and it begins with symbolic thought which for me that was kind of a new one i'm like wow even art you know it should be like (laughs) (laughs) Like, i don't know i don't know i mean i think excuse me i think all of these things it's like it's interesting to think about you know but you can you know uh, you can put that at like the agricultural revolution you can put it at you know the bible when when god said you know go forth and dominate the earth to me it's like wherever we put it historically the question always is like what am i doing in my day-to-day life to go toward one or toward the other am i getting lost in abstract thought and conceptualization or am i here and now you know yeah and what what choices am i making in my day-to-day life that push me more one way or more the other and am i happy with that is it good yeah you know and just again just making what what was once automatic and a foregone conclusion like making that a conscious choice Mm -hmm. yeah and that's again you know like i you know from you know like one of the things that i've really come you know to you know uh believe anyway is that you know we have all these different levers you know like so exercise is a lever you know cold plunge is a lever heat stress is a lever fasting is a lever you know, good sleep, you know, good community relation, you know, keeping all these things going in your life. These are all wonderful, important, you know, levers that, you know, and you want to have them all, you know, together, ideally. But that the one that I really do feel like is the one that, you know, gives you the most uh, impact is this, you know, what we put in our bodies, what we actually are consuming for energy. And that, you know, that we should be critical of that. We shouldn't hand that over to corporations, you know, never, never in the history of our species did we eat, you know, like powders, you know, we never ate industrial seed oils. We never ate refined. These things are unhuman. You shouldn't eat them. They're toxic. They're bad. You know, like putting in a whole ingredient, real food into your body. You know, that's like, I feel like is the biggest lever that we have. And it's one that you can do no matter where you are, right? It doesn't matter if you live in, I mean, maybe, I mean, although there, I take that back, you know, like Michael Pollan, you know, years ago came up with that saying, like there are food deserts and it's poor people, you know, poor people that live in cities. You can't walk in a five miles, you know, away from where you live and find nutrition. That's a problem. That is a huge, you know, injustice to the world. But for a lot of people, that is one thing that you can, you know, take, take ownership over, you know, it's what we actually fuel ourselves with. Yeah, and I think that was a real eye-opener for me leaving the States, you know, to, to live in Europe, is I think that's, it's not exclusive to the States, but it's definitely a much, much bigger problem in the States. Like The inequality, you mean? Uh, well, inequality, yes, and food inequality as well. Yeah. Like, I, I, when I go to the States, I feel like if I don't, if I'm not actively engaged in the food I'm eating, like, I'm, I'm going to be poisoning myself. You know, it's like, I can do that for a week and survive, but like, it's, it's dangerous out there, you know? And, and why? Because the legislation is horrible. so horrible. I mean, what a horrible paradigm. Yeah. 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 But it's, it's true. You know, it's because the, the corporations have done a really good job of changing the laws and, and like, you know, in the States, it's illegal to say something's non-GMO, you know, that's crazy. Yeah. That's crazy. It's just crazy. Don't, I don't have the right to know what I'm eating because the corporation doesn't want me to, you know? And so in, in Europe, it's not, it's not a paradise, but, but things definitely are much better. And I, I don't, I guess to me, it's like, it's just a, a reminder that, that legislation is important and the political dimensions mm. are really important. And it's like, 
I mean, I really like this about the States. The way I always describe it to people here is it's like a country of extremes, you know, and because the food is so bad there, it's, it's been the hormetic stimulus, if you will, to create yeah. a pushback where it's like, you know, people are really extreme on the other end, you know, and really paying attention to what they eat and, you know, going all out in terms of growing their food and hunting their food. And it's like, why? Because it's necessary in the States, it's necessary. And in, in Spain where I live, like you can, you can get by pretty well, just like eating in restaurants and, you know, going to the grocery store. And it's, it's changing, it's changing. And, and a couple of years ago, actually, this is something, I don't know if it got any publicity in the States, but Obama was pushing really, really hard to create basically like um, a free trade agreement between Europe and the States. And th there was a part of it where it was basically like the, the country with the most lax rules is going to get priority. So all of the US nutrition and labeling laws were going to apply to Europe. And that was like, it got very little press here, but and it came very, very close to passing. It was like literally there was one small region, I think it was in Switzerland that said no and opposed to it. And all of the rest of Europe was on board. And we were like very close to just completely transforming the world, you know, and it was, it was all done in secret. Uh, you know, it was very similar to, uh, what was that, uh, after nine 11, the, the Patriot act it was all done in yeah. secret and closed doors. Like they gave you two hours to read the document. That was like 2000 pages. You weren't allowed to bring any kind of phone or recording equipment. And like, after those two hours, you had to say yes or no, you know, it's insane stuff. And it was all, uh, you know, it was all framed as like, we need to be strong and united against China, blah, blah, blah. But it was like, it was scary stuff, but anyway. I, so, so I guess what I what I what I'm saying is like this this stuff that is intensely personal and like you feel it in your gut, like I'm healthier, I'm not. Also has a political dimension. It has a larger social context. That's that's really important, you know. And, and I guess that's that's a part we haven't really touched on yet. And I I'm just curious to hear how how you draw that connection from your sort of even like your childhood impulse to like get out and explore and just be in nature and have a good time. Like how has that evolved into what you're doing now, which is, you know, you, you call yourself an activist and, and that's a lot of what you're doing is sort of pushing for the greater good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, you know, being a carnivore and a climate change activist, it's kind of strikes people as, you know, uh, contradiction in terms, but I don't see it that way at all. Uh, and in fact, you know, I think that there's a big part of a big piece of the puzzle that people who are promoting, you know, that the world should all become vegetarian, vegan because of the climate crisis, they're missing this enormous elephant in the room, which is that monocrop agriculture, industrial agriculture, as we know it in its current form, depends on fossil fuel inputs. And it has destroyed the soil. It has stripped it of its carbon. It is, you know, the soil in the, you know, in the, you know, the Midwest, you know, the bread belt, you know, or the uh, bread basket of America, you know, used to be like eight, 10 feet thick, you know, loamy, rich, you know, nutrient dense soil. And it's now inches. It's desertifying. You know, it, we are losing that soil. The only way to not have that happen is to return it to its natural habitat, to rewild it with ruminants with you know, what you know, historically was buffalo, but you can use any number of other ruminants. And so there's this um, brilliant, um, okay, what is his name? Um, Sav Savoy, Savoy, Savoy. Um, he's a South African ecologist who um, has been using this intentional grazing technique to 
take desertified, denuded areas and to make them be productive ecosystems again. And he has this fantastic TED talk, you know, and it's, the proof is in the pudding. It is not theoretical, you know, like, and people are doing this in the U.S., you know, to a very small degree. There's a really good documentary that came out recently called uh, Kiss the Ground, I think. And it's all about how important, you know, soil health is in the, you know, in our fight for, you know, a, cl a stable climate system. So this notion that, you know, we should all be vegetarian is, or vegan to fight climate change, like whether or not you decide that I'm going to not, you know, eat meat, I feel like that's absolutely a personal decision. But to say that that's what we need to all do and we need to get rid of, you know, ruminants is very disastrous, would be horribly disastrous. And it would be committing us to more of this monocrop, monoculture, um, industrial agriculture that depends on these fossil fuel fertilizers and then the you know uh, pesticide that you know the um, you know, pesticides and herbicides as well whereas the regenerative style ranching coupled with growing vegetables and grains whatever um, that's the only way to you know those are the only two options and so if you were to ask anybody like you know you know one one i think it is that you know is this ethical side of the question then it's like okay well if you're against and I'm eating animals from an ethical point of view, again, wonderful. That is your decision. If for some reason you do have that strong feeling about that, you know, I don't want to take life. You really need to consider though, that one life of a cow is very different from a monocrop agriculture system. You know, most people in the world these days eat corn, grain, and, you know, corn, wheat, and soy. And those fields are devoid of all life except for that single ingredient. So it's not, it's not that you're killing one animal, the cow or the chicken or the pig, you're destroying an entire ecosystem. So there's no birds, there's no microbes, there's no bugs. The mice that maybe be in the field get picked up with the combine. So there's no escaping death in your food system. And I think, you know, to, to be a mature human, you should like grapple, you know, everyone should grapple with that. There's no escaping death. You know, multicellular life is over a billion years old on this planet. And since then, everything has had to consume something to survive. So, you know, they should get over that. <laughs> but you want to be at the coal, you know, you don't want to be, you know, pathological or crazy in your, you know, your belly or whatever. But uh, so, yeah, th those are big ones that I think about. But then really where my focus always, so that's kind of the big picture, like, you know, how we need to be rewilding the world to fight climate change, but then also become healthier in the process as human beings. Yeah. But in Alaska. Can we zoom in on, on, on one thing there, which is, I think you're, you're highlighting a really important difference between sort of monoculture or CAFO sort of industrial agriculture versus yeah. regenerative agriculture. And, and there, right. I think, I think within the, the sort of CAFO model, um, yeah, there's, there's no question that like, the, the way CAFO is done is incredibly destructive to the environment and supporting that system is, is not good for anyone. It's not good for your health. It's not good for the planet's health, but that doesn't necessarily mean that regenerative agriculture and doing things like, you know, intensive grain, grazing schemes and things like that can't be great for, for the planet and, and for your health, you know? And so it seems like there it's to me, there, there's a, one question is what are you eating? Another question is like, where's that food coming from? Right. Uh, and I just, I keep seeing the, the recurve bow behind you on the wall. Um, <laughs> I, I just got- Which I actually don't hunt with it yet. I only practice with it. I still, okay. I, I, 
my my low tech hunting implement is a slingshot, but I mostly still use guns. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. Cool. I, I just got a recurve as well. I just started practicing. So yeah, the same this, that's the goal. You know, that's like yeah, that's where I'm I'm trending. Yeah. 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 So tell tell me about that about your. I guess, I mean, I, I asked you to, to zoom out, but I'm now I'm asking you to zoom back in to your, your oh, yeah, experience yeah, yeah. with with. Well, I mean, I think that you kind of re relate uh, because what I was going to go to is the zooming out back into Alaska. What this means for me, you know, about this kind of activism side of things is that we have not despoiled our water, our, you know, our bioregions. We still have, you know, we're losing stuff. We are losing stuff to climate change, unfortunately, um, and overfishing in the case of like Bering Sea crab which is really sad. Um, but, uh, you know, we still have these, you know, these functioning intact ecosystems that provide direct sustenance, you know, to us. And that to me is very important to maintain that. Um, that, that will give us resiliency in an unstable climate future that we're, you know, marching into no matter what, you know, if there's one degree is already baked in, you know, we're, no end in sight, you know, we're gonna probably hit the 1.5 and the one, you know, and the two degree C increase, you know, without bad an eye and things are gonna get real ugly. And so as much resilience as we can have in Alaska to, you know, maintain, you know, our ability, you know, here's here's the stat, 95% of the food in our stores is imported from out of state. So, you know, when it doesn't take very long, you know, the beginning of the pandemic was like a real eye opener for people are like, oh, you know, when these shells go empty, like there's nothing coming in, <laughs> you know, it's pretty scary, but, uh, yeah, that's okay. So zoom back in, you're asking like what my harvesting, like lifestyle, yeah, yeah. how does, how does that, like, I, I assume like part, part of your, your sourcing, your food sourcing journey is, is hunting, right? And yeah. 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 How does, how do you, because that's, that's another thing where I've, I've come across a lot of pushback in that where, like you say, it's, it's, a, it's a sort of uncomfortable marriage where a lot of times when people are climate activists and sort of interested in, in that realm of things, they're, they're anti-hunter. Um, yeah. and, and in Alaska, that's, I think that's a place where that's often not the case. Um, but, and, you know, when I spend time with the sun and, and, you know, to me, it's so obvious that hunting is, is a part of conservation and it's a part of, you know, being, being a human in the environment, just like any other animal, it's part of the circle of life. Like that's how you do it. There is no other way. Um, you know, try, try telling an indigenous person, like you can't hunt, you know, it's like, what? <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, crazy. that would, that's the thing I think it would be so funny. Like we don't, we don't have environmental, you know, groups that come to Alaska anymore, like Greenpeace in the like seventies, eighties did. And uh, sea shepherds at one point, you know, did. And they just, Oh my God, you know, you colonial piece of shit, get out of here. You know, yeah. like, you know, that are, you know, but yet there are invalid, you know, environmental concern things that people are very concerned about and fighting on, but you know, like, yeah, this mentality of, you know, this uh, kind of like contemporary progressive, you know, anti-hunting pro vegan does not exist in Alaska. <laughs> you know? At least not prescriptively, you know, like if people think it, they might think it, but they don't, you know, wear it, you know, on their sleeve and promote it because, you know, like we, you know, Alaska natives have been here for, you know, at least 10,000 years living, you know, on the, you know, these mammals, these fish, these birds, you know, um, so yeah, it would be very colonial to come here and say, oh, you should, you know, take on a plant-based diet to save the climate, whatever. 
it, yeah. you know, you'd get, you'd get no traction. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I think, I think a piece, a lot of people miss there is the way that, well, I mean, hunting is often framed as like a very aggressive, uh, destructive right. practice. And it definitely can be like where, where I live traditionally it is like, it's, it's insane. Like to hunt one wild boar, typical sort of MO would be between 20 and 30 men in four by fours with, you know, 40, maybe 60 dogs. They've all got their radios and they just like circle around it and sit there drinking their wine, smoking their cigarettes, like waiting for it to come out. You know, mm-hmm. it's yeah. to me, it's disgusting, right? That's, it's like, yeah, that's not a form of hunting that I'm interested in. But when you look at, you know, the Alaskan context where hunting often means like a multi-day or even multi-week trip, you're skiing or packing in, skiing or packing out, like it's a very different relationship. And there's a way in which, yeah, hunting is or can be like deeply respectful and even spiritual like communion with the animal, you know? And I think that's a, a piece of the puzzle that a lot of people miss. And I think that the same way, you know, a few years ago, people were talking about, you know, with, with born to run and like, we've evolved to run, we've evolved to carry, we've evolved to climb, whatever. It's like, we've also evolved to track animals and to hunt them uh, with, with very limited technology yeah. that requires a super intellectual, like super in the sense of above intellectual understanding of the animal. Like you have to enter into the spirit of the animal. If you're going to, you know, be in the Kalahari in these extreme environments, you know, or in Alaska, and you're going to stand a chance to get this animal that's faster than you, that has better senses than you, like you have to, to really know something deeply about it, you know? And I think that's in the same way that you can talk about diet or movement or anything like that. I think that's where the spiritual piece comes in. It's like, in order to be fully human, like we need to have access to that way of being in the world. You know, I think hunting is to do that. I couldn't agree more. You know, I, I, I find it so fascinating, you know, that, you know, two and a half million years ago, climate change drove early hominids out of the trees and into the savanna. You know, it's theorized that our first, you know, like major food source, we were scavengers. Um, this drove our pH down at that point. Uh, you know, we, we have scavenger, you know, pH, you know, like we, we can eat rotten meat and be okay, you know. Um, and at that time period, you know, all these other adaptations started to, you know, come along we started standing upright so we can see over the grass better we started shedding our hair so we can you know shed heat easier then we can jog we can chase we can do this persistence hunting then we're getting more access to this you know nutrient density animal based nutrient density and the brain size just starts going absolutely nuts the guts the big extent expensive guts that we had as primates that you know were used to ferment um fiber shrink you know you can't have two expensive organs simultaneously so we're losing that ability to process lots of fiber but we're growing brains because we need to be cunning and we reached this apex point of fit you know we went from like little 400 cc brains you know two and a half million years ago as homo habilis you know and on through this branching you know they call it you know they used to say like branches and now it's Anyway, you know, the the evolutionary family tree that we belong to and are the only surviving members of, unfortunately, at this point, Homo sapiens, sapiens, um, brain size peaked at 1500 cc's 10,000 years ago. 
really interesting time. You know, that's the beginning of the Neolithic Revolution and the widespread, you know, adoption of grains in the diet. You know, I'm not alone, I don't think, in thinking this, but I think that we needed bigger brains that we feel were so superior with our technology and all of these gadgets that we've created in our lives and look, you know, just look at us. We live in the space age, right? Yet we don't need the faculties like we needed, you know, 20,000 years ago to just live, you know, to be able to smell keenly, you know, a few molecules on that light breeze of whatever carrion it is or whatever animal, you know, to be able to see it through the, you know, all the brambles in the brush, the little track of blood from the animal you necked and to know that it's heading in that, you know, all of these sensory things that we had to be so in tune with as hunter gatherers for the vast majority of our time on this planet required incredible cognition, you know, and focus and attention. And yeah, that's something I feel like, you know, we're losing both the capacity, brain size is shrinking, we're undernourishing ourselves, and we're not giving ourselves these proxy experiences of like putting ourselves in these, you know, scenarios where we have to really think on our toes, yeah. you know, as a species. Again, that's, you know, I can tell that you're doing this kind of stuff in your life. And, you know, I'm certainly trying to do them in mine. Yeah, no, it's, it's, I mean, it's an active process, you know, and it has to be, it's a daily decision, you know, it's, you either do it or you don't, you know. Right. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely working to incorporate that as much as possible. And I, and I think, I think what you said there, you hit on a, a really key point, which is when you're out in nature in this way, it's just so keenly observant, um, your relationship with nature changes. And I think it's, it's not an accident that hunter-gatherer cultures have a sustainable relationship with nature because you're it's impossible to to confuse yourself and think that you're in charge like you have to be incredibly aware and responding constantly to the signals of the weather of the movement of animals you know where you're going to sleep for the night all these things you're you're constantly tuned into that and so it's like your place in nature is very very clear like i'm one part of a bigger puzzle and i've got to like play the game right or i'm going to die you know right and it's it's I think when we, our technology developed that allowed us to, you know, store grain for the winter, um, you know, work, work harder in the summer, you know, that creates the storage of wealth, which creates hierarchies in society, creates imbalances and like, blah, 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 here we are today, right? And so, so to me, like, to, to come back to the, the question earlier of like, how do we, how do we apply this sort of way of being or this knowledge to people who are living in, in a totally different context? To me, a, a lot of it comes back to this relationship with nature. And it's mm -hmm. like, the more deeply you understand that like I am not in charge or I have no right to be in charge, then like the whole sort of context of decision-making changes and a whole sort of realm of way of being and way of consuming and acting and, and thinking, it just doesn't make any sense. You know, and it's like the, the more time you spend in nature, the more time you stay in that sort of state of humility and awe and openness and observation and attentiveness, the harder and harder it is to act irresponsibly and destructively. Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. Yep, 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 couldn't agree more, yeah. yep. Yeah. Matt, I really appreciated this conversation, it's so great. Yeah, yeah. really cool to talk. Likewise, <laughs> likewise, yeah. likewise. Yeah, I guess, um, yeah, we're, we're way over time, um, but, uh, <laughs> 
but I, I just I have one one question I want to ask you when you when you talked about this um, this talk that that was a sort of aha moment for you with the the native guy from from the lower forty eight. You said there were four pillars that he mentioned, and part of it was was diet and uh, uh, intermittent fasting. Do you remember the other pillars? Do you remember? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I do in a kind of a broad sense, but not a, you know, I couldn't say like, I couldn't articulate them as well as I could, how well I remember those because I was already keyed into those things yeah. at that point. Okay. And when he said them, it was like, oh, but uh, I've, I've found his website and I can, I can share it with you. Cool. Yeah. Um, there's, there's a lot of things you mentioned that I want to, want to get the links uh, definitely to, to the books, talks, whatever. Also to your, your website, you're on Instagram, Facebook, all of that, uh, YouTube, yeah. Vimeo. Cool. We'll, we'll put all of that in, in the show notes so people can can check you out. Awesome. And I guess yeah. Is there is there anything else you want to add? Any any stories you want to tell? Any any last little little bit? Mm, last little bits. Um, well, no. Uh, you know, I'm like I'm excited. I'm hoping that everything uh, stars align for me. I've been kind of busy lately. You know ridiculous way but that um you, you're coming up here to do the um hormesis uh course right yeah 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 so yeah. I'm hoping to, uh yeah it definitely engaged you in that and awesome. and hopefully you take it i've never done it you know like i i practiced the wim hof breathing but i usually just do the cold plunges like i just like jump in like a caveman uh, and, you know and don't put all that intention into it so it'd be fun to do that in a more guided you know controlled way um yeah. Um, yeah, I'm glad, you know, the one thing that, you know, I really was, you know, had been thinking about a lot before we, I knew I was going to talk to you and then I was hoping it would come up, but it's, you know, just, again, there's, you know, like all these, I feel like they're, they're levers and these levers, you know, reconnect us in better ways. And the, just the thing that I've been thinking about a lot lately is the lever of, you know, examining in your life where is it you're buying something that you could yourself produce or procure, you know, and whether that's food, whether that's your heat, whether that's your water, whether, you know, whatever that is in your life, you know, there's no, you know, like we should all live under the assumption that we live in a free will zone and that there's no rules, you know, like you get to make up the rules, you know, like if you're, you know, I mean, of course there are code, you know, in some cities like you can't have fire because of the, you know, the, uh, pollutants or whatever so maybe that wouldn't work in that scenario but you know i think there are a lot of ways that we can examine how our collective a how what the impact that we're having you know on to the worsening ecological crisis how can we reduce that but have it not come at at a like at the at the cost of taking one for the team you know because i think that's the way it's oftentimes it's framed it's like okay, drive less to save the environment or eat this way to save the environment. And then it's all, you know, like do something kind of that you don't really want to do for the greater good, you know? And I think that there's a way to reframe that, that, you know, that the outcome is the same. You're making a, a you know, a, you're lessening the collective impact by making a personal choice to not participate in something that is collectively bad, but that, it's a positive, you know, that you're regaining some sense of um, worth and, you know, um, connection 
by having it be like, yeah, I, I now don't have plumbing in my house and I haul the water and I really enjoy carrying those five gallon buckets. I feel strong, you know, like things like that, you know, um, you know, of course, you know, a real easy one is transportation, right? Most of us can walk or ride a bike a lot more than we do. And when you do that more regularly, when that becomes the routine, even if the weather is shitty, you're like, I'm going to stick to it. I'm going to ride my bike. I don't care that it's blowing 40 and raining sideways, you know, like I'm going to, I'm going to own this. It's going to make me feel good. You know, those kinds of decisions I think need to be reframed, you know, I thought about in this way of like, you know, primal, um, primal economy, taking control of your own primal uh, economy. Yeah. 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 I love that. I love that. Yeah. That's good. Great. Cool. Well, thank you, Bjorn. I really appreciate it. Yeah, man, it's been a blast.